From PQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. Hello, this is Joe Mino. I'm the author of Demons in the Spring, which is a collection of 20 short stories. Uh, the 20 stories are actually illustrated by 20 of the most amazing uh, creative visual artists in uh, in the country right now. Everyone from the likes of Charles Burns to Archer Pruitt to Jay Ryan to Ivan Brunetti. And uh, a number of the stories, or most of the stories, actually deal with the idea of catastrophe. So the story I'm going to read from uh, deals with a, a terrible event at high school. It's called, What a Schoolgirl You Are. What a schoolgirl you are. You read choose-your-own-adventure books and novels about teen romance with cheerleaders on the cover. You believe in the idea of true love. People in your classes call you withdrawn, shy. When your back is turned, they call you lame. You tell yourself how you don't care and go on reading Judy Bloom, even though you're a sophomore now and still trying to comprehend why you don't quite fit in at your high school. Your hair is the same as it was in fifth grade. You have no idea what to do with an eyebrow pencil or a lip liner. Your armpits are hairless and so are your legs. You are 15 and waiting with much dread for your first period to come. Your body is a green twig full of knots and unattractive bumps and angles. You have decorated all of your folders with the same drawing of the same Pegasus leaping over the same castle. What a schoolgirl you are. Ditching your algebra class one day, you go to watch your best friend smoke in the green woods beside the highway. You never smoke. Your father died of cancer two months ago. When you were small, your father would read a book to you, kiss your head, and then switch off the light. In that moment, he would become a shadow. That is how you think of him now, a shadow, quiet and lonely in the dark corner of your room. Now you imagine everyone you love dying suddenly. You are sure somehow your father's death has something to do with you. That afternoon, you are told a secret that changes your young life. Jessica Bennett, the dark-eyed, rosy-cheeked captain of the high school cheerleading squad, has, without reasonable explanation, committed suicide. Your closest friend, Patrick Van Buren, whispers this gossip to you as you sit on a wet log. Patrick is one year younger and has small, delicate features. He stutters frequently. He is what other kids call queer and wears his blonde hair in one long series of cascading bangs. There was a moment where you thought he was going to kiss you, and you were terrified of what was going to happen if he got an erection. You think he saw the fear in your eyes and made a decision to never try and kiss anyone ever again. Patrick offers you a cigarette, which you decline. You then ask, how did she kill herself? Corey Phillips, your other best friend, picks at her braces and answers, she stabbed herself 39 times. Corey is tall and is often called horse face while walking down the hallway. Can you believe it, she asks. She stabbed herself 39 times. You are impressed. You are impressed because you have often imagined stabbing yourself to death. Strangely, the number in your head has always been exactly 39. You have imagined putting on the soundtrack from The Sound of Music and taking a kitchen knife to your midsection, counting out blow after blow, one, two, three, up to 39, until you collapse and the record finally ends. You now imagine Jessica Bennett doing this, and what you feel for her is an untold amount of respect. Why did she do it, you ask? Brad Armstrong broke up with her. 
You think of Brad Armstrong, tall, square-jawed, dark eyes, captain of the football team, the Romeo in every school play. Knowing Jessica Bennett has stabbed herself 39 times because of unrequited love forces you to consider that you may have been wrong about her and everything. Corey finishes picking at her braces and frowns. Jessica was, like, totally evil, she says. The world is, like, much better without her. A cloudy question storms your mind, then. You say it before you've had a chance to actually consider what's being said. Who's going to replace Jessica on the cheerleading squad? They're holding emergency tryouts tomorrow afternoon, Corey replies, snapping a small rubber band back in place somewhere within the darkness of her mouth. You stand abruptly as you have now made a decision and say, I'm going to try out for the cheerleading squad, and begin walking back towards the school in a way you imagine is brave. Your friend Corey stands frozen, a statue of a girl with a horse face staring. Patrick's small mouth drops open. He tries to catch a glimpse of your non-existent breasts while you are bravely walking away. If you really do decide to try out for the cheerleading squad, go to page two. If you decide to go home, put on the soundtrack to The Sound of Music, then stab yourself in solidarity with Jessica Bennett, go to page 15. You choose to try out for the cheerleading squad because you know that, in its own way, this decision is practically the same as stabbing yourself to death. It's a kind of suicide, you think, and this is both terrifying and pleasing. As you are walking home, you are trying to remember the cheers your older sister, Melanie, used to practice when you two shared the same room. This was before she disappeared last year, stealing your small white piggy bank, which contained nearly $300 saved from babysitting the previous summer. Melanie is now somewhere in Arizona with an older man named Ron, who is no one you have ever met. You imagine him with rough hands and a mustache. Melanie sent you a letter recently telling you she wishes she never left. You carry the letter at the bottom of your school bag and hope she is not dead. Ready. Okay. Is about the only part of Melanie's cheers that you can remember, but you repeat the phrase again and again, pronouncing it with each step. A strange brown station wagon pulls up beside you as you continue to absentmindedly rehearse, remembering the stage smile on your older sister's pretty face. A good-looking man with dark hair and a black eye patch unrolls the passenger side window and calls to you. Hello, he shouts. Can you help me, please? You look at the man and know at once that he is seriously troubled. You know at once that he means you harm. The shape of his chin is weak and his mouth is soft and resigned. You approach the passenger side door and stare down and see his hands are white and trembling. You can easily imagine him strangling you to death with those hands and think perhaps death by strangling would not be so bad. I will give you $50 if you'll come sit next to me. You look down into his face and know if you get in the car, nothing will be the same for you ever again. You think, this is one of these moments. This is one of these moments where everything changes. If you do decide to climb into the car with the mysterious man, go to page three. If you decide to turn and just keep on walking, practicing the cheers of your older sister, who may already be dead, go to page eight instead. You open the station wagon door and climb inside. With his black eye patch on, the mysterious man looks handsome and daring, a buccaneer from a romance novel you've just read. What do you want me to do? You ask, all out of breath. 
I want you to hold my hand. His large, pale hand reaches out for your small, dainty one. You close your eyes and imagine this as the final moment of your life. You are pleased to think people will certainly be surprised when they find your body somewhere in the woods, naked, marked with the signs of struggle, a struggle no one ever thought about until this grave instant, this instant where a strange man took your hand. But he does not try to strangle you. The man folds his chin against his chest and he immediately begins crying. You sit beside him and he holds your hand and continues to cry. Then he stops, apologizes, and gives you the $50 as promised, two twenties and a wrinkled ten. You've kept me from doing something, he whispers, still holding your hand. I was going to do something awful to myself. You look down at your feet and see a dirty brown paper bag and suddenly know there is a weapon of some kind, a knife or a gun resting silently inside, the man's desperate fingerprint smudgy on its shapeless handle. You also realize the man is not a man at all, but a boy, 17 or 18 at the oldest. This is clearly his parents' car, since there is a small religious figure on the dash and a needle and yarn resting beside you on the seat. You see what you thought was a mustache is the same desperate, unshaven fuzz of the boys who pass you in the hallway. You let go of this strange boy's hand and now feel like you've forgotten how to breathe. You fold the money into your pocket and climb out in a hurry. As you're leaving, the boy asks, May I see you again? You take out a pen and write down your real name, address, and telephone number on the back of his hand, then walk away without talking. As you head on home, you wonder what your father would think of what has just happened. You wonder if he is watching over you or, like everything else you believe, only a dream. If you decide to go on believing that love continues after death, go to page 4. If you decide that death is the end of all things, go to page 16. You decide to go on believing death is not the end. You decide to keep on believing that love is greater than any moral divide. You think of the hospital before your father died and the odor you could not place. You would sit beside him, his soft gray eyes closed and sad, the sound of the machine beside him breathing mechanically, his hand resting beside yours, crossed with strange-looking blue veins. Every day after school, when you went to visit, you wore the yellow and white striped sweater he had given you for your last birthday. It was too small and was tight in the shoulders, but you wore it every time you went to visit anyway. After your father had been in the hospital for three months, you told him it was time he got a haircut. He agreed. A nurse came in and tied a white smock around his neck and gave him a trim. He looked handsome, like a movie star. He was 39, only 39. He looked 100. He did not care. You combed his hair and he asked you where your mother was. You lied and said she was working. When he died, you made a promise to yourself not to cry, not ever. You have not broken this promise yet, but have come very close. And this, this moment now, walking home alone, thinking also of the strange boy in the station wagon, this may be one of those times. If you decide to go home and practice for cheerleading tryouts tomorrow instead, go to page 5. If you decide to start crying and finally break that promise, go to page 15. In the school locker room the next day, you undress before cheerleading tryouts and become terrified of how white your legs look. You notice Hope Chang, a varsity member of the cheerleading squad, 
slipping out of her jean skirt, her legs like a swimsuit models, her bust, womanly, and thrumming. You realize that what you are doing now is just as painful as stabbing yourself, worse possibly, because suicide, in its own way, at least has an end. This, this prolonged heartache, this living day to day, it is these moments, these deep, deep howling moments, these upturned, dark and woeful moments, these clawing, coffin-shaped moments, these nail-through-the-palm-of-your-hand moments, these every-breath-you-take-is-full-of-baby-spider moments, it's these moments that are by far much more frightening. In the gym, in front of the coach, your legs begin to buckle. The coach is a small, dark-eyed woman, her hair long and unbrushed, a silent sign of the grief from having lost one of her own. She is clearly bereaved, clearly struggling to keep herself from crying. She looks over the nine or ten girls there for tryouts and then whispers the sound of her voice a dull, unanswerable question. Who among you, like Jessica, has the guts to climb to the top of the human pyramid? Who among you is willing to threaten life and limb, staring into the dark profundity of death at the screaming height of halftime, just like our dear Jessica? You take a small, hesitant step forward, raising your little hand. The coach nods and blows her whistle, and immediately the six living members of the cheerleading squad assemble, young, darling, skin both shiny and scrubbed. They begin a cheer, and one by one start to form a gigantic human pyramid. The coach, wiping a flurry of tears from her eyes, nods at you, and you walk forward, taking Hope Chang's hand. You climb upward, completely ready for this to be it, your final moment, your often-imagined death. You don't die, however. Somehow, somehow you manage to stand, only wishing this would be the end. You are in your bedroom when the phone rings, and, as no one ever calls for you, you are quite surprised when your mother, from down the hall, shouts out your name. So unsure are you of the call that you stare at the pink sparkle phone at the foot of your bed as if it is another piece of furniture and not a telephone at all. You pick up the receiver and speak, though not confidently, and the voice that responds is the voice of the boy who just yesterday afternoon was holding your hand and crying. I called to thank you, he mumbles, and to apologize. Apologize, you say? For scaring you, I'm sorry to scare you like that. I wasn't scared, you say, and realize you are not lying. I've been driving around thinking these things for a long time. I've been driving around and thinking, maybe I don't deserve to be alive. You whisper the word, why? You whisper it quickly and wonder if he's still there listening, and there is a silent beeping on the line before his voice returns, and he asks, What's the worst thing you ever did? His voice is turning to static, and you suddenly feel like you are once again in the car with him. The answer you are thinking of is this. I did not love my dad enough to keep him from dying. I don't know, you say. I haven't done anything really bad, I guess. I got in a car accident and killed my friend, he says. We got in an accident because I, I wasn't paying attention. We were holding hands. It was this game we used to play. It was a secret, I guess. He let go of mine, and I went to grab his, and then we got in an accident. He breathes, and it sounds like he might start to cry. I lost an eye, he adds. It doesn't really matter, the, the eye, I mean. The phone feels like it is a silent hand on your throat, and you hold it away from your face, 
checking to be sure you are still breathing. I've been thinking about killing myself, the boy says. But now I feel okay. I feel like I have a friend. Okay, you say. I think I'm going to start crying, if that's okay. Okay, you say. If you decide to close your eyes, let the boy cry for the next three hours, fall asleep, wake up, walk down the hall to be sure your mother is still breathing, pick up the phone, and continue to listen to the young man weeping, go to page 7. If you decide to hang up the phone right then, go to page 13. Hands on hips, your shoulders back, you stand with the other six cheerleaders before the silent crowd. It's six months later, and it's the middle of the big game, and your team, the Tigers, are winning. You scan the cheering bleachers for this strange boy's face, handsome, reserved, with the eye patch a little dramatic, a little scary. You finally find him sitting there in the middle of the sixth row. He's wearing a dark green army jacket and is staring back at you. He looks sad and beautiful, like a watercolor in a hospital room. Just then a referee blows his whistle and you realize the Trenton Tigers are up 52 to 46. Tara Armstrong, the shortest of the girls on the squad, tugs the back of your uniform and you discover you haven't heard what cheer has been called. You glance once more over your shoulder at the mysterious boy and then back at your squad who are all standing patiently waiting for you to get ready. Hope Chang shouts, Ready! And the squad cries out in unison, Okay! You're on top and you know it. We're right with you, so let's show it. You begin your ascent up the human pyramid. You imagine falling and cracking your skull, the crowd dulled to quick silence by your dramatic death. You imagine what they would say, your grainy picture on the front of the school newspaper. You imagine your friends, Patrick and Corey, staring at the photo and nodding coyly. When you reach the top of the human pyramid, unsteady, grasping the hem of Tara Armstrong's shoulder, you see the small square of the gym wavering beneath you. You hear your teammates cheering and the crowd clapping and the sound of your heart beating hard against both terror and death. You see how small the world you have known has always been and smile. Then closing your eyes, you fall backwards into the arms of the other cheerleaders, their hands gently catching you, falling right past death, just as you've always practiced. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit kqed.org slash writer's block. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED. (laughs) 